Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Welcome to Sports Time Machine here on the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. I'm Anna Kagaraikis, and each week we head down memory lane as I take you back in time and remember some of the greatest moments in sports history. Leave your flux capacitor at home. All you need to do is subscribe to the show on iTunes or any of your other favorite directories like Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, Luminary, and TuneIn. This month, just a couple of years ago, Sean O'Connell was crowned champion in the light heavyweight division of the Professional Fighters League, an arduous and demanding task that paid off literally in the end. Sean will join me in a bit to reminisce the championship and what it took to get there, plus share some other fun stories along the way. But first, let's revisit the moment he became the champion. Here's sound from the past. They look like they've gone 15 rounds. And here we are in round number three, and O'Connell keeps firing those shots. Body shots. One well-placed punch from O'Connell, and this thing's going to be over. I think whoever wins this fight certainly earned their million dollars. Holy cow. Sean barely has the strength to walk away from him. And Vinny barely has the strength to stand up. It's like drunken kung fu out there. (laughs) Yeah. Final 10 seconds of round number three. As O'Connell staggers away, Vinny staggers to his feet. Did the epitome of an this. absolute war inside the cage. Okay. Magalas, something's, something's wrong. Okay. Hey, does he want to continue? I think he fractured his orbit. Look at his cheek. Yeah, that is it. It is all over. Yep, the fight is over. Keith Peterson has ended the fight. It yeah. is all over. When it comes to definitely yeah. happen. What a storybook ending for him. This is insane. He got married, his wife is pregnant, now they can buy a house. He, he came back out of retirement to do this. Unbelievable. Sound courtesy of PFL MMA. Now that was the PFL's inaugural season, but that's not the whole story. For more, let's get the perspective from the man himself. Let's walk down memory lane with Sean O'Connell. Rose. Well, we're going, we don't need roads. All right, now we head back in time with Sean O'Connell. Sean, thank you so much for joining me today, and let's go back in time. But first, how you doing? I'm doing good. Uh, and look, I'm always down to go back in time to the glory days. So thanks for calling me. You know, I first wanted to start off with your your weigh-ins. The weigh-ins, I mean, anybody <laughs> can look them up on YouTube, but they are stuff of legends. How did that come to be? I mean, I remember ones of you like bringing out pizzas, a pinata. How did that all come about? Yeah, I, uh, I just started doing it um, as like a... I don't know, kind of a gimmick to get people to notice me, I guess. I tried to have fun with the whole scenario. Everyone else tries to be such a hard ass at weigh-ins and all that stuff, and I thought that was kind of silly because the fight's going to happen one way or another. So, yeah, I just uh, – my coach and I talked about it, and he's a funny guy too, and it just grew from there. Once, uh, once I got into the UFC, people kind of expected me to be that class clown at the weigh-ins. 
And it was fun. I think you're right. I think that was a great way for people to notice you and just let your personality come out. You know, what were some of your greatest experiences going up against, you know, some of the other fighters? Did you make any good friends out of that? Yeah, you know, actually, the um, the first the first guy that I fought in the UFC was someone I already knew, and that was the one where we linked arms and toasted, so to speak. Um, and so we were already kind of buddies, and that uh, that became sort of a thing for both of us. Um, and I don't, not everyone loved it, right? I mean, the guy I took a selfie with, John Vellante, he was a real good sport about it. I consider him a buddy now. He lives in New York, so we don't exactly talk much, but I've run into him over the years several times at other fights and whatnot. And yeah, it's just uh, the, the funny thing is, is how many guys that are still in the game, younger guys, whatever, uh, they know me for that. They don't know me <laughs> for fights at all. And a lot of fans would say, like, they couldn't tell you who I ever fought, what I ever did in the fight world, but they, they remember me as the funny way in guy, which is probably good and bad, I guess. Well, how did it all get started? What did you first start out doing with martial arts? Like, did you have like a certain, I don't know what the right, correct term is, but not a practice, but what was the, the best form of martial arts uh, that you did? Like, what did you yeah. do growing up? I mean, I, I wrestled in high school, right? And that, that's kind of like a base where a lot of guys start out. They wrestle in high school or college. And then I had a very underwhelming college football career and just wanted to make sure that I was still competing when that was over. And MMA was really kind of hitting its its current stride at that point. I mean, actually, not even fair to say that the game now is like it was back in 07 when I started. Like, you know, that they've come leaps and bounds in less than 15 years. But, yeah, I had a wrestling background. I did some, like, kickboxing stuff in the off-seasons of football just to stay in shape. But I didn't really have the lifelong martial arts background that a lot of guys did. Was that a disadvantage for you at all, you think? Uh, I mean, maybe. Maybe not. I think It depends on how well you take coaching, right? Mm-hmm. I I didn't have some of the, the bad habits that you need to break. Like, if I was a super dyed-in-the-wool wrestler, sometimes it's hard to adapt to, to jiu-jitsu because in jiu-jitsu, it's okay to be on your back. In wrestling, you never want to be on your back, right? right. If you're hardcore karate guy when it comes to MMA you probably have to change your stance significantly so uh, I think it was probably better for me and my personality to be a little bit more of a blank slate because once I learn something I'm the kind of guy who thinks that's the right way to do it I'd probably be super married to that particular form Uh, and and as it was all I was was like a dumb football guy so (laughs) I knew that I knew that I needed to learn the right way to throw a punch and learn the right way to execute all the jujitsu techniques and everything else. And, and look, I'm, I'm 37 years old and I still have so much to learn in all of those areas. So that's the beauty of martial arts. You, you never really stop learning. And the older you get, the more you realize how much you still don't know. That is really interesting, too. And you're not just a dumb football guy. Obviously, if you can adapt to different forms and different types of martial arts, because that is a skill in itself, obviously, you know, I this is not nearly as close, but like my son is, you know, he's almost eight years old. He started out doing like some Brazilian jiu-jitsu. He wasn't a big fan of it, but now does kung fu with a neighbor of ours who's a master. And he loved that. But I noticed that 
each kid has their own, just their own strengths and people gravitate towards different things. And I think I like the idea of kind of mixing it up and making it so that you almost have like a grab bag of different techniques. Yeah, I mean, that's 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 sort of what mixed martial arts came from, right? All of these experts in one form or another believed that theirs was the best, right? Mm -hmm. The wrestler thought, I can beat up anyone because I'm a great wrestler. The jiu-jitsu guys said, no, all you need is jiu-jitsu and kickboxers and boxers and everyone, karate practitioners, everyone thought that their way was the superior way to engage in hand-to-hand combat. And as the sport progressed, what everyone learned was you have to be competent in several different arts if you want to be dangerous as a fighter, right? Uh, because it started out where you could just have one or two. And now if you want to be in the UFC, you got to be at least proficient in four. And if you want to be elite, you got to be good at probably five or six. You got to have judo and wrestling and Muay Thai and traditional boxing, probably have to have some karate skills. I mean, you got to be able to mix it all up if you really want to be elite in the MMA world. And uh, I'm, I'm actually, I applaud you for getting your, your kids into martial arts young because it, it allows them to kind of forge their own path. Jiu-Jitsu wasn't necessarily great. Okay, Kung Fu something that, uh, that resonates a little bit more. It, it, it's like that when you're an adult too, mm-hmm. right? Yep. I mean, even as a fighter, I was a stand-up guy. Like I, My coach is one of the best jiu-jitsu practitioners in the United States and that was that's kind of like the core of our gym, but I took to striking a lot more. So instead of trying to force me to be a jiu-jitsu guy, he just said, I'm going to make you decent at jiu-jitsu, and we're going to try and make you great at striking. I love that. I love that. I just love finding what everybody's unique ability is. But let's talk about your career. You know, early in your career when you were starting out in MMA – And you were starting to also host a show for 95.7 The Game in San Francisco. And I personally remember listening to your show at the time. And you're with Matt Steinmetz, right? Yeah. Yeah, me and O.C. and Steiny was the show. Middays on the game. It was awesome. He was, he's one of my favorite people. But how did that come to be? You know, how did that come about you working in radio? And how did you balance it all when trying to fight? It's actually funny because um, fighting is what got me into radio. I was on a path in you know college. I wanted to be a federal law enforcement officer. I wanted to go kick down doors for the DEA or something like that. And that's what I did. That's what I went to schooling for. Uh, I obviously played sports in college. And uh, when I made the transition into MMA, as I was you know I was putting my resume out there and applying for law enforcement gigs and things like that. Uh, I was also fighting and I got decent fast. And thankfully at the time, the Utah fight scene where I live was pretty healthy. We had several guys already in the UFC. My coach had fought for UFC title and there was an opportunity to kind of get big quick and to gain a little local celebrity. And so I did fighting and then a radio station here in Salt Lake city had a a boxing and mixed martial arts show every Tuesday and Thursday after drive time was over, like, you know, six to 8 PM when nobody's listening. Uh, And they asked me if I wanted to host the show because I, it kind of made to help host the show because I kind of made a little bit of a name for myself in the local fight scene. 
And I did. Uh, obviously, it's a no-brainer to sit down and just talk about sports that you love. And that kind of, I guess, determined my career path for the rest of my life because it uh, it pushed me into the radio world. And, you know, I, I started working full-time shortly after, about a year and a half after that, got a morning drive show. And thankfully, uh, every company that I worked for was pretty supportive of me trying to also pursue mixed martial arts and continue to fight. They saw that I was taking it seriously. Um, and I would just make sure that my training didn't interfere with my shows. And uh, I was able to, to kind of do a little bit of both. Now, later on, when you joined the Professional Fighters League in 2018, that was also a year that you had won the PFL Light Heavyweight Tournament. What made you decide to give the PFL a whirl? Well, they uh, they were giving away a million dollars to the champion. That sounds nice. And <laughs> I said, I, I looked at some of the guys that they had signed in their light heavyweight class, mm-hmm. and they were guys that were uh, kind of, at least I thought, on or below my level. There were guys, uh, you know, the greatest fighter in the history of the sport is a 205-pound fighter in the UFC, John Jones. If I was going to win a UFC title... I had to get through that, right? Mm -hmm. I looked at this million-dollar tournament, and I said, well, I don't have to beat a John Jones to win this. I I can make one last ride at this. You know, my body's – I'm getting older. My body's starting to break down. But I can put it all together for one year. I can beat all 20 of these guys whose names are being attached to this this single season. I know I can beat them all. So I'm just going to make a run at it. And – I had some good conversations with Ray Seppo, who's a, a fighting legend himself and happens to be the president of the PFL. And uh, we came to some terms and they they made me part of season number one. And obviously it worked out because uh, just like I thought I could, I fought my way through and, and won it. So what was that year like leading up to the finals from everything, you know, the training, the mental focus, what sticks out to you the most that year? I mean, it, it's, it, it was the, the most um, grueling year of my life, but also probably the best year of my life. Uh, I got married <laughs> right before the season. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, once you get married, you're responsible to take care of not only yourself, but other people, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I, I had to work my... Sirius XM radio show. I was training twice a day. I also had to get another job uh, that provided health insurance benefits because now I have, I'm responsible to make sure my wife has health insurance. Right. So Mm -hmm. I was doing that. Um, I was recruiting pilots for a local airline is what I did in order to get my uh, health insurance benefits. So my days were very full from 6 AM to about 10 p.m., I was going, 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 uh, trying to balance it all. We found out uh, about three months after we got married, my wife was pregnant. So oh, wow. all of these things, all of these things were happening at once. My wife, if you go back and you watch the highlights of the championship night, my wife is, she's, uh, what is it, four, three months pregnant, three, four months pregnant, uh, watching me win that championship. So it all happened at once. And it was Incredible how much sleep I didn't get, but things worked out the way they were supposed to, and it springboarded another avenue in my career to not only go out on a high note winning that championship, but also um, 
kind of take over as the the lead play-by-play voice of the Professional Fighters League, which would not have happened if I didn't have a radio background. It would not have happened if I hadn't won the championship because it's a lot easier to say this is our first ever light heavyweight champion sitting in the chair. Mm-hmm. If you're just some schlub who lost and didn't do anything, you know, they're probably not going to give you that opportunity. So um, I I love being a dad. That That's 10 times greater than anything else that I've ever done. And all of it happened in 2018, kind of all at once. So it's the best year of my life. So let's go back to the big night. Madison Square Garden, New Year's Eve 2018. Take us back to that night and give us the perspective from your eyes. I mean, it was... It was really interesting. It was amazing because I knew it was going to be my last fight. Uh, things had kind of worked out uh, to set up for the the storybook ending that I had hoped for. If somebody like me gets a storybook ending, that's about as good as it's going to get, right? And I knew I was going to go out on this note, and everyone close to me knew that as well. So all of my old high school buddies and their wives came, uh, friends, training partners, my in-laws, my wife's entire neighborhood that she grew up in, basically, um, you know, friends from back in the day. Everybody came to watch my last fight. There was there were over 100 people who made their way from Salt Lake International Airport to JFK on New Year's to watch me do my thing for one last time. So that was incredible. But it, with it came, you know, some extra pressure and... I'm not a big like nerves guy. I usually don't let nerves get to me, but that whole week, just the the gravity of what was at stake, my final fight, the biggest purse of my career by far, uh, the, the potential opportunities that might not be there if I didn't win it, and the fact I was I was the biggest betting underdog on the card. My opponent was a Brazilian jiu-jitsu ace who had fought his way through the season and through the playoffs. And it hadn't taken him more than two minutes to beat anybody else. Wow. He'd finished all of his fights in under two minutes. And mine didn't go like that, right? So I was a like a seven-to-one underdog. But I was incredibly prepared. I had been through a, a really grueling and awful camp where we had gotten the biggest, strongest, baddest, most technical jujitsu guys that you can find. And they had just punished me for eight weeks leading up to camp to where – I even if I got on the ground with this dude who's a black belt, world-class black belt, he wasn't going to be able to submit me. He, he, he was, I was never going to be able to submit him probably, but he wasn't going to be able to submit me either. So I felt super prepared. I was nervous right up until the moment when they started playing my music and I walked out. I saw all my friends and saw all my family and I just got this feeling. I was like, all right, this is it. I'm doing it. I'm going to win this. And thankfully it worked out that way. It it wasn't a pretty fight. It was very tough and back and forth, uh, but we got the job done and and that's all I can ask for. What about that moment? You knew the one you won the fight. It was crazy because usually, right. You, you knock somebody out or you submit somebody or whatever. And and it's that kind of moment of finality. And you're like, well, he had won the first round of the fight and the momentum swung in the second round. I beat him definitively in the second, and I was smashing him pretty good in the third. And my coach, between the second and third round, like he's he's not going to last through the third round. Just keep the pressure on, and 
and you'll finish him in this round. Well, he made it to the end of the third round, and I go back to the corner for the for the fourth round, right? And my coach is like, okay, you dominated that round. You just have to keep going. I was pretty tired. My opponent was pretty tired, right? He said, you just keep it up, and you'll beat him. Smart defense. Just keep doing what you're doing. I promise he's not going to last. And as we're having this conversation, you know, there's some commotion on the other side of the cage. And Joe Martinez, who's the in-ring announcer, he catches my attention as I'm kind of looking around. And he, he does like a slash across the throat thing, like fights over. And then I look to the referee and the referee is waving both hands above his head, which is the universal sign for the fight being over. And I was like, wait, what? Because we're between rounds. And my opponent had quit on the stool. He he decided he couldn't come back out, which that's an outcome that you never thought was going to happen. Not with a belt on the line, not with a million dollars on the line. There was no way in hell that was going to be the outcome. So it took me probably 10 seconds to like fully be convinced that that's what was going on, that he was quitting, that I actually had won. And then I'm just like, what? That means I'm a champ. That means I'm a millionaire. And of course, from there, you're just trying to absorb it. And it was, it was crazy because it's not like I landed some big punch and he fell down asleep. And that was like, oh my gosh, there it is. There's the win. It was a, a, a cage full of personnel and doctors and the in-ring announcer finally catching my eyes and going, oh, you, you did it. You won. It was wild. I mean, that must have felt like an absolute dream at that point, just sitting there thinking, I won this. It, was it a movie moment almost for you? I know you didn't, you're saying you didn't get that big punch, but just the idea of having all those lights around you and just knowing I won this whole thing. Yeah, I, I, don't, know how many, I don't know how many fighters talk about it, but like, obviously you're excited when you win a fight, right? Uh, but I think the greatest feeling is the immense relief because there's so much pressure, right? And the pressure is all about winning. It's not fear of getting hurt and things like that, but every fighter goes in there and you're worried about being embarrassed. You're worried about taking another L you're worried about just wasting all of the preparation time and all the work that you and everyone who helped you put into that moment. So like there's this immense wave of relief that washes over you when you win. And like, that's in any fight that's in your first amateur level fight. Right. And then you, amplify that and multiply it by literally $1 million because it's just like, oh, yes, I won. I did it. And then because of the setting and being at Madison Square Garden and seeing all my friends that had traveled, it was like, not only did I do it, not only did I win a fight, but I won the fight. I won this fight. I won my last fight. And this is what people are going to remember about my career instead of me being just like a guy who kind of sucked in the UFC or the funny way in guy. And it was, it was such a relief and it was amazing. And I was, I was really happy. I mean, I could just fathom the idea of saying, I'm going to take this check over to the bank and put this into my account. <laughs> I mean, what was the first big purchase that you got? Was there like a big purchase that you're like, I'm getting this if I win and you got it. There was a lot of stuff that I was like, if I win, I'm going to get this. And, um, I, I didn't get any of it. I got none of it. <laughs> <laughs> so like I, I got uh, a kid on the way. Yeah, I got, <laughs> yeah uh, we decided to be responsible and you know invested, and uh, we bought a new house. But that's a big purchase there. Not like, yeah, it's a big purchase, but it was a year after we won yeah. <laughs> the, the the championship. So it was like, yeah, you 
you have this vision of like, oh, I'm going to buy like, I'm going to go get a Tesla or I'm going to buy myself. A, I've always wanted a Harley, right? I was like big motorcycle guy. I'm like, I'm going to get a Harley and I'm going to chop it out. I'm gonna, it's going to be the sickest bike ever. But then when your wife's pregnant and you got to make sure that you're around for your child's life, it's like, eh, maybe I'm not going to. Maybe I'm not going to buy a motorcycle. Like when so, they're older, when they're older, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Once, once, once she doesn't need me anymore, then I'll buy my Harley. So now you said you knew that you, that was going to be your last fight. When was the moment that you actually decided that? You're like, all right, this is it. I'm done no matter what. Probably after the I made it through the playoffs, which is the multiple fights in one night, right? You, you do that, and then you qualify for the championship. And it, it had kind of been geared towards, like, this was supposed to be my last ride. And if my last ride had gone in a way that was unsatisfying, or if it was a thing where I had like not even made it through that two fights in one night or whatever, then maybe I would have been like, okay, I learned something and I got to come back and I'll do it next year. But I just, I, it felt like it was the right time. You know, I have the, I'm only 37. I was 35 at the time. I, I have the back, the lower back of like a 92 year old man, you know, like sometimes I wake up and my left foot is numb. So it's like my body was really going to hold up that much longer, especially with my fight style being. So I take a lot of damage. I'm not real quick. So I don't avoid all the punches. I just absorb them with my face. And you know, the fact that I had a child on the way was kind of like confirmation that like, okay, this fighting thing is a selfish pursuit. You do this for your own personal entertainment. You do this for your own personal glory. And now it's not about you anymore. So it's out of the way and it'll be the last one. And it just, it, it felt like all signs were pointing to that being the correct decision. And I still feel that way. Sometimes I miss it, but um, I still feel like it was the right thing for me to do because I remember pretty much everything. I don't think that CTE has damaged my cognition too much and uh, I want to keep it that way. But before we go, one of the last things I want to ask you is, you know, what keeps you motivated now? You know, you're not fighting anymore. What keeps you active? What keeps you motivated? I know you have your kids and everything, but what's the key motivation? Uh, Well, every athlete I think goes through this process where you have to come to grips with the fact that you're not, a football player anymore or not a basketball star anymore, or in my case, not a fighter anymore. And you got to find something else that scratches that competitive itch. And for me, it's, it's now being the best version of my, of myself as a broadcaster, particularly doing play by play on fights because I am quite literally the only high level fighter who's ever transitioned to the broadcast booth. But not as an analyst, right? I mean, you're in the industry, you know that usually if you're a a professional athlete, the role that you take post your career is as an analyst, as an expert, right? Is the guy who they they toss to you and you break down the play or whatever. Well, I I love play by play. And I I felt like my niche was going to be because of my broadcasting background was going to be as a play by play man. And so now I want to be the best play by play man in the world. And I have, Uh, a knowledge and a skill set that nobody else has who fills that role. I mean, there's guys who are way better professional broadcasters than me, but nobody has decent broadcasting chops and also fought at the highest level 
And because I have those things, I just, I want to marry that into being the best play-by-play man. And that's, that's kind of what drives me now. I just, I, you know, there's John Anik is the gold standard. He's the UFC's main play-by-play guy. Uh, and Michael Chiavello, who's probably more familiar to like international fans, the voice they call him, Marlo Ronaldo, some of these guys who've been legendary in this game. I want to be better than all of them. And I have one leg up already because not a single one of them ever spent time competing in the cage at the level that I did. So that's the motivation now. I mean, you had all these different fighting styles that you adapted to. Might as well do the same thing when it comes to broadcasting as well, right? (laughs) I hope so, yeah. And and the thing is, like, for a guy like me, I'm very proud of the career I had. You should be. I won the PSL championship. But there's always going to be someone better who's a Hall of Famer, who's a legend, who wants to sit in the right seat, who wants to be the analyst. Okay, so I'm never going to be chosen over those guys, even if I'm a better broadcaster. You're never going to put Trent Dilfer in that seat instead of Troy Aikman, even though they're both really good at the job. Right. Mm -hmm. Because Troy Aikman's the multiple time Super Bowl winner and he's the Hall of Famer and he's the big deal. So I had to do it on the play by play side. And because of that, I'm in a very unique position and I'm the only one who does it. As a play-by-play man who has fight experience, and I'm going to try and take it as high as I can. Well, keep on climbing. You are doing fantastic. So, where can people find you now? And you know, where are you on social media? At Real OC Sports. Um, the social dilemma basically had me get rid of Facebook and Instagram, but I'm still active on Twitter because that's what you got to be on if you're in the sports media world. Tweet at me. Tell me what you love or hate about me. I'm that's fine. You can read my book. It's available on Amazon. Just search my name, Hellbound Heaven Sent. That'll come up. Um, and also Sirius XM Channel 373, Monday through Friday. I host a Pac-12 show with Jeff Schwartz. PFL Season 3 begins on the ESPN Family and Networks April 23rd, 2021. We'll be doing fights live again, and I'll be sitting cage side with Randy Couture calling those fights. Can't wait for it. We signed some incredible talent. I'm really proud to be part of the company. So, yeah, big things coming, and hopefully we'll get to talk about it again next year. Fantastic. And uh, what was harder, writing a book or fighting? Two very different sorts of difficulty. Fighting is very, like, instant gratification, right? Writing a book takes forever, Mm -hmm. especially if you're me. So it's it's just a, a, a terrible, tedious process, but... Uh, it's rewarding if you ever get done. And I, I've got like two different ones in the works, but they've been in the works for seven years and they'll probably wow. never get done now that I have a kid. So that's the extra motivation right there. Don't worry. You'll get it there. You'll get it there. But uh, I, Hey, I give you <laughs> credit for first, if we're getting a book published right now, I'm going to put that in my Amazon cart right now, but Sean, thank you so much for joining me. I know it's a busy holiday season. Stay healthy and enjoy the holidays with your family. All right. You as well. Thanks for having me. Well, that will do it for today. A big thank you again to Sean for joining the show. And thank you for listening to Sports Time Machine. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and rate Sports Time Machine on iTunes. Again, we're available in all your favorite directories like iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, Luminary, and TuneIn. You can also find the show at Believe.com and at Believe Podcast. And don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Anna Kagarakis. That's K-A-G-A-R-A-K-I-S and on Instagram at Anna Kags. And you can get involved in the conversation by using the hashtag SportsTimeMachine.
If you're interested in advertising on the show, please contact Believe at Believe.com. Well, time flies when you're having fun. Thanks for heading down memory lane with me. I'm Anna Kagadakis, and we'll talk soon. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.